0: If you have your Bible, please go ahead and grab them and turn to our passage for this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 12 will be in verses 28 through 37. Mark chapter 12 in verses 28 through 37. And as you turn there, I have a question for you to consider this morning. How do you feel about superlatives? Superlatives? You know the question that people ask you about what's the best or who is the greatest or what's the most important? You know questions like what's the best restaurant in Fort Worth? Who's the greatest, Michael Jordan or LeBron? Who's the greatest football team of all time and why is it Alabama? (laughs) Roll Tide. Superlatives are fun but rarely are they helpful. There are often ways in which we communicate about what we love and what we enjoy and what's important to us. They're really a display of our preferences in the moment. And rarely do we see superlatives as anything other than just something we feel in the moment in that time, in that season. But there are moments in time when superlatives move from fun to important. It's like when the car breaks down. You want to find the best mechanic. Or this next summer when your AC inevitably gives out, you want the best and the fastest AC guy you can find. And when you get that unexpected cancer diagnosis, you want the best doctor with the best treatment. With life, sometimes superlatives cease to be fun and become a matter of life and death. Life has a way of doing that to all of us. To sober us up to see who we really are and how fragile our lives actually are. And then we're forced to ask the superlative, what's most important? What's the best way to live? And this morning in our passage, we have a man who wants the answer to that question. He comes to Jesus with a superlative. What's the most important thing, Jesus? What is the most important thing. What should we do? How can we best spend our life so that our lives are pleasing to God? And with this, Jesus is going to show us how we all today can live a life pleasing to God. He's going to show us how we can best spend our lives. So look at our passage for this morning in your Bible and follow along with me as I read God's Word, starting in verse 28 all the way through verse 37. with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe said to him you are right teacher You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, it's much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. What's most important? What's the best way to live your life? What must you do to live a life pleasing to God? That's the question that should be on all of our minds as we live this life. As we know that that death will soon come for us, we want to live our lives in such a way that when that day comes, we have no regrets standing before God. So what must we do to live a life pleasing, pleasing to God? I think there's two things from our passage we must do. Number one, we must have a right love. A right love. And number two, we must have the right Lord. We must have a right love and the right Lord. Point one, a right love. This is verses 28 through 31. And number two, the right Lord. This is verses 32 through 37. I pray that in light of this sermon today, that each one of us would make it our aim to live a life fully devoted and pleasing to God. Let's look at point one now. To live a life pleasing to God, we must have a right love. As we've seen over these last few weeks, Jesus is in his final week on earth, and he's gone through a sequence of confrontations and questions from the religious establishment. They had heard of Jesus for years, and now they came face to face With not only his works but his teachings and they were not impressed by what they saw they saw Jesus as a nuisance and they were angered by him and they began to scheme about how they could get rid of him so that he would no longer be a bother to him to them and from the end of chapter 11 to verse 34 of chapter 12 Jesus has had four questions posed to him all of these were tests and trials to cause him to stumble the first question was about his authority where did he get it from The next question is about Caesar's authority. The next one is about the resurrection. And today the question is about the law. What's Jesus' thoughts on the law? And with each one of these questions, Jesus is proving to, to everyone around that he's no mere carpenter, that he's no mere rabbi, that he isn't just the flavor of the month. He truly is the Son of God come to save the people of God. And in our passage this morning, we are going to see that uh, the third and kind of final group that makes up the Sanhedrin, that is the governing body of Jesus' day, the religious council, has sent another group of people to him. It's the scribes. The scribes were dedicated to knowing the law, exposing the law, and interpreting the law. So it makes sense why they would come to Jesus with questions about the law. So we see here in verse 28, they come to Jesus and they ask this question. Which commandment is the most important of all. It's hugely significant how Jesus answered this. He's put on the test or put to the test again. The scribes would have known and counted that there were some 613 commandments in the law in the first five books of the Bible. Now, to be very clear, I don't think the scribes necessarily were trying to trip Jesus up to get him to to pit one command against the other. I think they were asking the question, which one is kind of the linchpin commandment? Which one is the fountainhead? Which commandment holds the rest of them together? That if you took it out, the rest would fall apart. And where does Jesus go? He immediately takes them to Deuteronomy 6. Now every Jew of Jesus' day would have known this because they would have recited it two times a day. There in Deuteronomy 6, what is happening? This is the the last book of the law. We know in uh, Exodus, God has come down to save his people from bondage and slavery in Egypt, to to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to, to give them the promised land for them to be his people and for him to be their God. But something happens. They rebel in the wilderness. So God brings judgment and says, all those who rebelled against me will not enter the land. They will die in the wilderness, and until they die off, they will wonder. But once they die, this next generation will enter. Well, the book of Deuteronomy is them at the border of the land, ready to take the land that God had promised. So Moses is retelling the law. Deuteronomy means second law. He's retelling them the law, and he's leading them to renew their covenant with God. And At the very beginning in Deuteronomy 6, he says this, there's one thing you have to do. And if you do it rightly and do it well, your life is going to go amazing. But if you get this wrong, your life is going to be terrible. And it's this. We see Jesus' summary of Moses says here in verse 29 and 30. This is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 and 5. This is the key text in the Old Testament. This is crucial that you get this right. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus says, if you want to understand the whole Old Testament, you've got to get Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. For if you get that wrong, the rest of it falls apart. He agrees with Moses. This is the thing you've got to get right. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, you must agree that God is one, and that he's worthy of all your affection and devotion. So if you're here today and you want to live a life pleasing to God, you don't want to waste your life, well, you must believe God is one and that he's worthy of all your praise and all your devotion. What does it mean for God to be one? You understood what that meant? Well, I think it means multiple things. And on the front end, I'm just going to warn you, point number one is rather long. This is a brief sermon, I think, but point one's a little bit long. And the first thing I'm about to say is a little bit dense, but hang on because I think it's going to be hugely beneficial for your soul. To believe God is one is to declare that he is not divided up into parts. God is a single and simple being. Though God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is not three gods, but one God. Each person is fully God. To say that God is one is to say he's not divided or composite. He's not part loving or part mercy or part justice or part goodness. No, God isn't merely loving. God is love. He, doesn't, he isn't just merciful. He is mercy. He doesn't just do justice. He is justice. He doesn't just do good things. He is goodness in himself. It's what our statement of faith says. We believe that there is one and only one living and true God, an infinite intelligent spirit without body, parts or passions, whose name is the Lord. To declare God is one is to admit that God is not like you. He's completely different. We have bodies, we have parts, we get surprised, we change. Not so with God. He isn't divided. And he Is the single source of all life because he has life in himself. All that is good in the world has come from God because he alone is good. Now, that's a lot to take in, I admit. But can I tell you why it's a really good thing for you that God is one? Why this dense theology is rich devotionally? Here's what it means. So think about this when something is made up of parts, it has the potential and capacity for change or decay. So think about your car. When I was in high school, my first car, this was in 2004, was a 1988 Oldsmobile Royale. The doors were the size of these windows. They were huge. It was a hoopty. There were stickers on the back that said, fear this. I was 16 years old, and my car was 16 years old. I'm not still driving that car. Why? Because it's made up of parts, and parts can decay. So you have tires, you have brakes, you have spark plugs, you have a fuel pump. And if one of these parts gets out of balance, it runs too quickly or too slowly, the whole thing can crash and burn, which didn't happen to my car. But it died because it's made up of parts. What does it mean for God not to be made up of parts? It means he cannot change. He cannot rot or decay. He can't. He's incapable of it. He is a single, simple being who cannot and will not change means he's not like us. He does not wear out. He does not get exhausted. He cannot change or he cannot become weary. Listen, one of the things you need to know as you navigate this broken world is to know that though this world may be falling away and decaying, though you may be falling away and decaying, God never will. He cannot, it is impossible for God to decay or to change. Though your affections and thoughts change towards God, his thoughts and affections will never change towards you. For they cannot change. God has no con- competition within himself about you. So the day you get the bad news, you go through the trial, where you get the bad doctor's report and lose your job, it isn't because God's justice won out that day and his love lost. That is not how it works. God is not. If you're in Christ, God is not conflicted in himself about you. All of God is is always, always for you. Every day for the rest of your life. So that must mean when the bad things happen, it isn't a sign that God is against you, but the sign that God is for you. Because God has promised that he is always working everything out for our salvation and our good because we are his children. But this is only for those who are in Christ. God has never conflicted about us because of what his son has done for us. So that means because of Christ... All of who God is, his justice, his love, his mercy and goodness is always for you for the rest of your days. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is what it means. So to declare that God is one is not merely to declare that is, his, his being is the essence of who he is. But it's also to declare God's supremacy. That he is supreme. That there is none like him. To say that the Lord our God is one is to say that he is the only one. That there is no other before or besides him. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is God alone. This is why, if you'll notice, the Ten Commandments are in order. And the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there aren't any. And to say that there are would be to lie about God. To bow down to an idol would to, to be to lie about who God is, for there's none but him. There can't be. He's the only one. And God commanded Israel to recite Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5 for the rest of their life. Why? Because they are a fickle and a forgetful people. That they are led to believe that there is another. And God's saying, there is no other. So brothers and sisters, you need to know this, that God is the only one. However, because we live in a sinful and broken world, this world will always seek to take God's place in your life. You need to know today that your bank account would love to take God's place in your life. You need to know today that your employer would love to take God's place in your life. You need to know that if you desire children or have children, they will do everything they can to take your place, take God's place in your life. Doesn't matter the thing, power, possessions, pleasure, even politicians desire to take God's place in your life. So a life pleasing to God is to declare that he is one, that he is wholly other, that he cannot change, that he alone is supreme. But it also requires you to declare that God is the only one by how you live your life. It's the logical flow. If this God is who he says he is, then he must require all of us to bring him praise and honor. This is what Jesus affirms, what Moses wrote. He's saying that God is one. He could have left it at that, but he continues to go on. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. To say that you love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, all these things, is the whole of man. That every part of you has to be for God. That's what it means. That's what God requires. He's so glorious. There can't be any part of you that goes rogue. It all has to be for God. So God isn't just worthy of your thoughts and not your affections and desires and thoughts and actions, or your actions and words, but not your affections and desires. No, because He is who He is, your thoughts should always be for God. Because He he is who He is, your desires should be fully devoted to God. Because He is who He is, your words should be devoted to Him, and your life, your actions should be devoted to God. The undivided God is worthy of your undivided devotion. If you're being honest today and you're doing kind of a a self evaluation and assessment, you think about your life up to this point. Which part of you has a tendency to rebel or to resist God? Which part of your life is most tempted to lead you astray? Do you think about God? but if you're being honest, you don't desire God, you don't talk about God, you don't live for God. Or maybe you think and desire God, but the fear of man keeps you from speaking of God or living for God. Or maybe it's the opposite. You don't really think about God, you don't desire God, but you talk like you do. Or in front of the right people, you live like you do. And we need to see this today. Anytime any part of us isn't devoted to God, it either means we don't understand who God is or we've been led to believe there's something greater than God. That's what's happening. And to put it as plainly as I can, anytime we aren't giving God the praise he's due, anytime we're loving sin instead of God, it is because something isn't wrong with God, it's because something is wrong with us. There cannot be anything wrong with God. He's perfect in every way. It means there's something wrong with us. So we declare that God is worthy of praise and affection, that he is the only God with how we live our lives. What does this look like practically? Three things. Three practical ways that we show God is the only one. How we deal with sin, how we gather as a church, and how we treat other people. These aren't the only ways we do it, but they're just three examples that came to mind. First, let's look at how we deal with sin in our life. We declare that God is the only one worthy of devotion and praise by how we address sin in our lives. When you're tempted to sin, to think, to desire, to say, or do something you shouldn't, you're faced with the choice. Will you love God with all your being by not giving in to sin, or will you hate God with all your being by giving in to sin? Those are only the two options. There's not a third way. You either love God or you hate God. To, sh- to choose sin is always to choose hatred and hostility towards God. When you choose to sin, you're saying there's something better than God out there in the world. When you give into your anger, you're saying, God, my passions are a better God than you. When you give into greed, you're saying, God, money is a better God than you. When you give in to lust, you're saying sex is a better God than you. And when you give in to sin, you lie about who God is. You say he's not trustworthy, that he is not worthy of your praise, he's not worthy of all of your life. But conversely, when you choose not to give in to sin, to trust God and give in the praise he's due, you declare that there is nothing in this life better than him. You declare that he is the greatest out there that he has no rival that he has no e- equal killing sin in your life is a great way to give god praise in your life Amen. so we, we declare our devotion we declare that god is worthy of praise and devotion by how we deal with sin we also by how we gather as a church how we gather as a people god has saved his people gathered us into a church so that we might reflect him so that the world might look at us and see what god is like so I don't know if you notice this yet about us, but we're kind of a quirky and persnickety people at TRBC. We sing old songs, and not just old songs, we sing a lot of songs. We pray prayers, and we pray long prayers. We preach expositional sermons, which I think could always be longer. Why do we do what we do on Sundays? We worship God the way that we do because we believe God has not left it up to us for how we should worship him. We don't think that God has left it up to our own imaginations and feelings for how we can worship him. Why? Because we change. He doesn't. So he's already told us in his word what pleases him, and we should do that in our gatherings to bring him honor and praise. So we gather the way we do, not out of personal preference, but obedience to God and his word. That's why we do what we do in our services. So when you sing, show God is worthy by how you sing. Meditate on the words. Let the the words stir your thoughts and affection. Raise your voice as loud as you can to give God the praise He's due, and to encourage those around you to do the same. Just think about this: singing engages all parts of you. You have to use your mind. You have to use your affections. You have to use your mouth, and you even use your body as you stand and sing. So it's a great way that we can give God the praise He's due. And when you pray. Use this as an opportunity not to be distracted by the world, but to, to focus on God, to declare with your own heart and mind, God, you alone are trustworthy. You alone are faithful. You alone are good. That, the posture of prayer is the perfect picture of God being worthy. We're bowing our heads. We're closing our eyes. We're in a state of vulnerability and saying, God, we trust you'll take care of us. Prayer is one of the greatest ways we declare that God is faithful and trustworthy, When we listen to him and set the distractions of the world, when we take our request to him, we prove that he's faithful and good. Not only that, but how we listen to sermons. Listen as hard as you can, as faithfully as you can. to say, God, I know that your word is better than anything I think right now or anything I feel. I know your word is true and it will always accomplish its purpose. I'm gonna listen with all my being right now because I know your word is right and your word is good. We declare our total devotion to God by how we gather as a church. We do this in this way to bring God glory so that those around us might see our church and say, yes, that is what God's like. That's who he is. So we showed our total devotion to God. We declare he's one by how we address sin, how we gather as a church, but also how we treat one another. Look at verse 31. Jesus does something very interesting, very sly. You might not even catch it. He asks, this man asks for the greatest commandment, so Jesus gives him two He says, the second is this, you shall love the Lord, excuse me, you shall love the Lord your God. He goes there and then he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the man asked for a commandment and Jesus gives him two. If you'll notice in your Bible, there should be a footnote by verse 31, which tells you this is not Deuteronomy 6, this is Leviticus 19, 8, where God tells the people they should not have any grudges, but they should love their neighbor as themselves. So why does Jesus, when the man asks for one commandment, give him two? Why not just say, love your God with all your being. That's the summary of the law. You need nothing else. Because loving loving your neighbor is loving God. And you cannot love God without loving your neighbor. They work together. You have to have them. The greatest expression and display of someone loving God is loving their neighbor. Or to put it this way, you can love your neighbor and hate God because that's what the world does all the time. But you cannot love God and hate your neighbor. It's impossible. Or as the Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4, 18-20, listen to what he says there. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love God his brother. In other words, if you say, I love God, yet you never serve, you're never gracious or generous or loving towards other people, you prove to be self-deceived. The love of God always shows itself in love of neighbor. That's how it works. That's how these are the, the summary of the whole law together. This is how the whole thing hangs together. And I think this is to be quite specifically done in the local church, in our life together as a church, and in your life throughout the week. And there's two ways. Here's why I think that. 1 John 3, 17. You can mark these down. Just go read 1 John this afternoon. It'll be very encouraging for you. 1 John three seventeen. Earlier, this is what John says about love. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John says, if you want to love God, then care for the people that are in your midst. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. To live a life pleasing to God, you have to be living a life among the local church. It means seeing the local church not about meeting your own needs, but about meeting the needs of others. It means centering your life around a people so that you can be generous towards them so that you can give of your time and your resources, of your prayers, of your encouragement, of your grace, so that they might flourish. And you do this not just towards the people you like, but also towards the people who are difficult to love. Because when you do that, you display the love of Christ to this whole body. Who among us today has ever been worthy of God's love and generosity? Not a single one. So we display what God is like by loving those in our midst who might be a little bit difficult for you to love by sacrificially giving and caring for them. When you realize what God has done for you in Christ, you can't help but to be like God and seek to match him in generosity towards other people in your life. Real love for God will always show itself inside the local church. It's what God saved us for. But not only that, it's to love those in our life who are far from God. How do we know this? So in Luke chapter 10 which is Luke's version of this passage. A man asks, after Jesus, after Jesus affirms that the, the summary of the law is loving God and neighbor, a man wisely asked, then who is my neighbor? And you know what Jesus does? He tells the parable of the good Samaritan. Which means, Jesus says, if you really want to show you love God, then love the people in your life you are tempted to hate those who you typically would avoid, those who you typically have nothing in common with. And when you do these things, you display yourself to be a true child of God. Now, I know a lot of questions arise practically, and what does this actually mean for me to love my neighbor? What are my obligations? And I will say this, you should always prioritize the local church. That should be first and foremost as a Christian in your life. But you must understand that just by prioritizing your, the local church does not mean your obligation to your neighbor is satisfied. There's still more for you to do. God has put non-Christian neighbors, family, and friends in your life so that you might love them and show them what God is like and even be generous with them and, and give to them, not expecting anything in return. And one of the greatest ways we love those in our life who are far from God is telling them the truth about their sin. It's telling them, here's who God is, here's what God is like, and here is how you can be made right with him. The greatest way we love those who are far from God in our life is to tell them about their greatest need, knowing God through his son. This is how we love our neighbor. If you want to live a life pleasing to God, here's what it requires you, to believe the right things about God, and that right belief produces a right love towards God and towards the people in your life. That's what God requires of you. That is a life pleasing to him. That is what God requires of all of us. We show that God is the only one by how we love him and that love for him will always produce a love for those around us. To live a life pleasing to God, you must have a right love. But not only that, you must have the right Lord. You must have the right Lord. Let's look back at verses 32 through 37. I'm going to read it by way of reminder for us. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that that he is one, and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, to love one neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. For the first time here, we see that someone from the religious establishment is actually pleased with Jesus. Jesus. They respond positively to Jesus' answer. He agrees with Jesus. He says, I know the Old Testament. I'm a student of it. And what you said, Jesus, is absolutely true. God has always required of his people to love God and to love neighbor. And the only reason that offerings and sacrifices exist is because love doesn't. Because man has chose to go his own way and not love God or to love his neighbor. He is delighted to hear Jesus' answer. But Jesus does something very interesting. Jesus sees that the man responded wisely, and then Jesus looks at him and says, you are not far from the kingdom. It seems almost like a cold response from Jesus. What does it mean to not be far from the kingdom? What well, means you're, you're near it, you've just not arrived in it yet. And being near is nice, but it's just not enough. It's like this. This past December, we made our annual pilgrimage to Alabama to see my family. And a 12-hour drive is interesting with four children. My girls are amazing travelers. They're the best, but they have one constant question they'd like to ask. Are we in Alabama yet? And we'll be in Dallas. I'm like, hey, are we in Alabama yet? Not yet. We're in Longview. Are we in Alabama? We're not yet. So when we're in Texas, they ask us, say, no, we're not in Alabama yet. When we get to Louisiana, I say, we're not in Alabama yet. But when we get to Mississippi and they ask, I say, we're near And everybody gets excited because we know if we just keep trucking along, we'll soon to enter into the great state that is Alabama. But though that's true, going to a state, that's not true with the kingdom of God. You can't just keep plodding along and then you'll just kind of find your way into the kingdom. Being near is the same as being thousands of miles away. Nearness only reveals you're still outside and not on the inside. You can't just keep driving to make it in. Nearness to the kingdom only reveals blindness to the kingdom. And the difference between being near and in the kingdom is eternity. What did this man lack? Or what else did he need for Jesus to say, you've made it into the kingdom, you're in? Well, I think that's why Mark includes verses 35 through 37. There Jesus says this, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? So Mark tells us right out of this interaction, Jesus kind of picks a little bit of a fight with the scribes, the very people he just had this interaction with about the law. And they... Jesus questions them about their understanding of who the Messiah was and his relationship to King David. That's what Jesus wants to get at, and this reveals why they're near the kingdom but not in the kingdom. They go to a passage like 2 Samuel 7, and they would see God's promise to David that one would sit on his throne. David says, God, I want to build you a house. And God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. After you die, I'm going to raise up a descendant from your offspring that he's going to build your house and establish a kingdom for you. So they were looking for this son of David, and they believed that he would be the Messiah, a son from David's lineage to come and establish God's rule and reign forever. But Jesus understands their misunderstanding who the Messiah is. They're not quite getting it, and he takes them to Psalm 110. This is a hugely significant passage in terms of understanding who the Messiah is. In fact, it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, this very significant in light of redemption history. So Jesus takes them there to Psalm 110, which says this, David said, David himself declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. This was a coronation song they would have sung when the kings of Judah and Israel were installed as the new king. And to understand it more clearly, the first Lord is speaking of God in verse one. And the second Lord is speaking of the newly inaugurated king. And to be installed as king is to speak, so to speak, to sit at God's right hand. And Jesus wants to help them understand and help all of us understand what it means for the son of David to be the Messiah. Jesus wants to question how can David call him Lord? How can David's son be David's Lord? Naturally, you wouldn't call David this great king, the greatest king in all of Israel. Say that he would have a Lord, that he would have someone greater than him, and naturally it wouldn't make sense for his son to be greater than the father. How can the son of David be greater than David? And this is what Jesus wants us all to know today. And this is the difference between being near the kingdom and in the kingdom. It's how you respond to this question. Who is the son of David? Jesus wants them to know that the reason why David would call him Lord is because he would be greater than David. Because the son of David, the one that God had promised, would not just descend from David's line, he would descend from heaven itself. The son of God came down to be the son of David. He came to be the promised son that would sit on David's throne, who would save God's people and establish God's rule and reign forever. Though David was great, Jesus is greater. David was a type he was a shadow. Jesus is the substance and the fulfillment. When God promised that David would have a son build him a house, he was not talking of Solomon or Rehoboam or Josiah or Hezekiah. He was speaking about Jesus. That's who God promised. That's how the the Davidic covenant gets fulfilled. So the reason Jesus says you are near the kingdom and not in it is because the scribes are not loving Jesus. See, the way in which you live a life pleasing to God, the way you fulfill the law is by loving Jesus. He's it. He's the only way to to live a life of full devotion to God. You cannot live a life of devotion to God unless you love God's Son. There is no other way to do it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what are you leaning on to make yourself right with God? What are you trusting in? Is it being kind, Being generous, being a nice person, all these things are good things, but they can only get you near the kingdom and not in the kingdom. Now you need something else. And to be clear, the kingdom is living with God forever in heaven. If you're trusting in your good works, they can get you near heaven, but they can't get you in heaven. For your works before God are useless and nothing. You can only trust in what Jesus has done. What did Jesus do? He offered a sacrifice pleasing to God through his life, death, and resurrection. You see, Jesus came to live the life we never lived. See, after what should have happened in this moment, after Jesus gives the summary of the law, the scribe should have come to Jesus and said, you're right, Jesus, that is the summary of the law. But here's the problem. No one can do what you said. There's not been a person, love the Lord, god with all their heart soul mind and strength and there's not been a person to love their neighbor as themselves so jesus it's good and right to declare the law but it's super discouraging because no one can fulfill the law what should have happened is this scribe should have felt crushed by the law and should have said jesus we have no hope without you that would have moved him from near the kingdom to in the kingdom See, that's the whole way this thing gets fulfilled. Jesus is the only one to ever fulfill Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Everybody else has failed. He is the only one who's ever truly lived a life pleasing to God in his thoughts and his words and his deeds. And he's the only one who truly loved his neighbor as himself. And we see that by him giving up himself through death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, that whoever would believe in him would have life in his name. If you're here today and you're leaning on good works, that will never save you. You can only trust in Christ. He alone has finished the work that God requires of all of us. If you believe in him today, what Christ has done will be applied to you. His life, his death, and his resurrection is attributed to you so that you are right with God not only now but forever. Jesus takes the law of Moses and this Davidic, psalm of prophecy and shows that the only way to live a life pleasing to God is to love your God, love the only God by being devoted to his son. That's it. There is no other way. And if you'll love Jesus Christ with all your being and trust in him, you'll go from being near the kingdom to in the kingdom forever. He alone satisfied the law of God. He alone is the one the prophets look toward He is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and will one day come to judge his enemies and save all of those who've lived lives of total dependence upon him. Brothers and sisters, the only way to live a life pleasing to God is by being fully devoted to God, loving him by loving his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do come to you in Jesus' name the one who alone is faithful, who alone fulfilled the law, who alone does what's pleasing to you. And we rejoice that though you could have left us dead under the, the, the weight of the, the curse, under the weight of the law, unable to do anything for ourselves, you could have left us in that state, but you didn't because you're a gracious and loving God who gives what his people need so that we can be made right with you. Oh God, we pray now that that each one of us, that our hearts would be captured, would be overcome with a love for Christ, and that each one of us would leave this place eager and willing to live a life totally pleasing to you by being devoted to your Son. Oh God, we ask that, that through your word that you would open our eyes, that you'd cause those who are far from you to believe on you and be saved, that they may trust you and live a life pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.